I recently began mourning the deaths of an aunt and an uncle. It was not only sad because of their passings, but that their deaths left so many of their stories untold. The stories of their lives, whether it was in New York City or Miami, were about more than what they ended up doing for a living. Their stories were about how they changed as immigrants into a new world and how that world changed because they were there. Beautiful Diaspora, You Are Not the Lesser Part, is an exhibition that challenges ideas of who is worth remembering or forgetting in the stories of a place. It is currently being exhibited at the Museum of Contemporary Photography in Chicago. Asha Imanville is a curator for the show and serves as an associate curator at the Museum of Contemporary Photography, Chicago, and is faculty at the School of Arts Institute of Chicago. And our other guest is Farah Salam, a Chicago-based artist and art therapist counselor. Her multidisciplinary practice is rooted within photography and expands into video, performance, fiber, and installation. I hope you enjoy this conversation. This is Ibadi and X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, Farah and um, Asha, welcome to The Candid Frame. I'm really pleased to have a chance to speak with both of you. But first, uh, Asha, let's let's start with you and tell us about the, uh, the exhibition, Beautiful Diaspora, You Are Not the Lesser. Awesome. How did that um, come about? Yeah. Um, so Beautiful Diaspora, You Are Not the Lesser Part is on view right now at the Museum of Contemporary Photography here in Chicago. It'll be on view until late June. There are 15 global artists of color that stand together thinking about what it is to not accept the label of minority externally, um, but also to reject that from the inside and really just thinking about cross-cultural solidarity and what it is to tell stories of identity and experience in a space with other folks um, in ways that don't often happen, I think, in museum space, um, as we know. Yes. Tell me about the whole process in terms of, you know, you come up with a concept in terms of what you want for the exhibition and what was the journey in terms of making it happen in terms of, you know, getting a sense of what this project is going to be about, defining that, and then the search for people whose work would be synchronous with that. Absolutely. Um, something nice uh, with our group today, Far was actually the first studio visit I had when I knew that I wanted to do this show in early 2021. Um, so out of the 15 artists, some I had worked with before on other projects, um, Cognate Collective, an amazing duo from Southern California. We've done about three shows together. Kelvin Hazel, an artist from Ghana, who I've been in conversation with for a few years through um just kind of a network of different artists and curators for several years. But once I had this idea um, and I had the new job at MOCP, you were the first person I met. Um, I don't know that I told you I was doing a show, but I feel like you were so good. I showed something on my screen with like the language of what the show was and you like ran with it. And I was like, I love her. And I think I videotaped mm-hmm. you as part of the exhibition proposal. It was so eloquently stated the way you talked about wanting to have works juxtaposed with other folks that you're not always juxtaposed with as an artist. I think quite often, right, in terms of nationality or religion or region, artists are grouped together more often than not in those ways. Um, Or maybe if they are not, it's almost in a contrast or thinking about some sort of like Olympics, like let's everyone now represent. And for this show, it really wasn't that. It was telling, I think, these intimate stories through photography of place and personhood and identity. 
and telling them in a way that wasn't um, in contrast or against or separated from other people. It was really having, I think, through lines of just these commonalities. And I will say the term person of color, I think, can be such a loaded term for people. For me, it's I was born in the 80s, but I'm very much probably a feminist of the 60s and 70s in my political thinking. Loretta J. Ross, the Black American scholar and activist, talks about what it is to be a woman of color and a person of color. And I love the way she describes it. Um, She says, you know, it's not actually addressing biology. It is addressing political solidarities that you have with other folks who have been minoritized. And in that way, it's a solidarity that is, um, it can be like blood. And that's that's what it is for me. You know, I don't expect every artist I encounter throughout my career and in my projects to have that same solidarity, but it's what I have. And when I'm putting together shows or thinking about who to work with, um, that's kind of always in my heart as the thing. And I would say even, it's interesting, there's an artist who is, um, someone will say like, why is this artist in your show? Um, and I'm like, well, because this person talks about what it is to be white passing in certain circumstances, but then in other countries, all of a sudden, you know, to be a person of color and how jarring that is as an experience. Um, and also something she wouldn't have realized if she hadn't lived in so many places. So, mm. and these are things I think academically and artistically I've been thinking about for a long, long time. Um, it's almost, I'd, I'd say, an inquiry or a topic that a lot of my projects have. And it just kind of has an output in different ways. The conversation just keeps growing and expanding with other folks who would like to be part of it at that moment and that are just doing awesome work. Yeah. Well, Farah, t- tell me about what was your response when when Asha contacted you about uh, about about this? Yeah, you know, I actually didn't know I was your first studio visit, Asha. I feel really honored and special. Um, I think we had a studio visit, and I was just kind of like going on and on about my ideas and thoughts that influenced my work. And then when Asha had proposed the show you know, the themes that she was working under, I, I felt like very in tune with it. And it felt like, yes, this is someone who I had a general conversation about my practice overall with, and we were connecting. And now this is a show that's like, like Uber connecting us about um, mm-hmm. the themes that we were talking about. So I felt like really um, in alignment and really excited to participate. And in, in terms of you deciding which work um, you were going to include in the exhibit how did you come to decide that you were going to do the 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 box series that that would be what you were submitting and if you could describe for our listeners who have not seen the work what what that is yeah so asha had proposed this work actually to be part of the exhibit um, and i was very open to it Um, so this series is a series that i started in 2016 it's titled cornered and i you know haven't haven't been sort of working or readdressing that series in, in a while. It's like a, a different part of my practice that I'd done back in 2016 and sort of having it being revisited again in juxtaposition to the conversations and the themes that Asha was addressing for this show really felt right for me. So the series itself is, perform. I call it performance photography. Others might not think so much but. I, you know, it's like this figure or person traveling with the same box and being sitting in a comfortably uncomfortable position. And Mm -hmm. throughout this performance series, and and that figure was me performing in this box, the surroundings were these beautiful spaces of nowhere, not necessarily identified as like, oh, this is a landmark of so-and-so. But they're just beautiful spaces. But then you see this figure in an open-faced box almost like it's a portal that transports you into this discomfort. And 
um, it brings about these questions of why, well, why is this person sitting in this discomfort? What is, what are these uh, choices that drive us to be, to get comfortable in these positions? Um, and throughout the series, personally, I know for me that there were moments where my posture would shift from like, oh, this is kind of cozy in the beginning. And then in the middle of shooting the series was like, I don't know, I, I kind of, I'm thinking about leaning out of this box. Um, and then towards the end of the the, the series, um, which doesn't necessarily show in the selected images in the show, but the box was falling apart. And emotionally, I was falling apart with it. And I was ready to get out into these spaces of beautiful nowhere and really was questioning myself of, well, why am I choosing to accept certain discomfort? Why am I choosing to accept these constructs that have been placed upon me? Or am I actively participating and being a part of these um, yeah. psychological constructs? Yeah. yeah, that's uh, that's one of the things I found fascinating was how the condition of the box progressed. You mm -hmm. know, it's like this, this this sort of limitation, this constriction, which could be attributed to you know social norms or whatever it is. But that as as people who are subject to that, at some point they themselves, even though they didn't create it, they maintain it. Hence the sort of the duct tape, you know, in order to keep it until you realize. This isn't mine, and it doesn't work for me. So why why should I stay in there? And that's one of the things that I thought was really striking in terms of I, I know what the images were doing, but your actual experience throughout that whole time of being dedicated to work was as as analogous to the human experience as it was to the visual one. Mm -hmm. So I really I really love it. I, I'm sorry I don't get to see the the prints up on the wall. I think I'd have a greater even greater appreciation for it there. But let's talk about this idea of, because it seems like, Asa, you were impressed with her ability to sort of verbalize her ideas and her concepts that you guys could have a dialogue uh, about that. Um, not everyone who's in the show was able to do that because there are other parts of the world. So how did you sort of parse in conversation and reviewing their work to come down to the number of people you eventually included in the show? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our first studio visit actually was on Zoom. It was pre-vaccine. And then our second, we were in person post-vaccine. But I remember, I think we may have still had on masks. I know you still had your air purifier going in the studio. Of the artists, yeah, I was able, I probably, no, I definitely had virtual studio visits with everyone. I do not know that I actually had that many in-person studio visits. There are three folks that are based in Chicago. Yeah, so I definitely actually had... No in-person studio visits, actually, um, except for except for you. That second time, everyone else was over Zoom or on the phone. Um, Damon Locks, also in the show, Chicago-based, I knew his work pretty well. We know each other. So we were able to talk over Zoom and over the phone um, and over you know email. David Ha, Chicago-based artist, we've worked together many times. I know his work, all of our conversations to begin with. He did come down to the museum to see the space. Um, David does these amazing wall paintings using three different colors, red, blue, and yellow, and thinking about primary colors and how that represents what it is to be a primary person, again, and not accepting minority. Um, so he definitely came, but I knew his work, so it was more of him getting a feel of the space and just catching up. Yeah, everyone else I had studio visits with on Zoom, on FaceTime, Google Hangouts. I think it was um, Ngadi Smart, an artist who's based between the UK and Ivory Coast, that was the biggest surprise, having seen her work digitally and really loving it. She has these amazing photos from a series called The Queens of Babe, 
that is looking at drag performance cultures. And um, they were stunning online. And then when we printed them here, having the files, it just like knocked us all down. You know, so again, you can see something and you can really fall in love with the work and have these great conversations. But sometimes it is so different when you actually see it printed and you realize you don't have that full depth. Yeah, no, so I would say really, it was interesting to kind of work with people that I already had relationships with online. Um, other people, Johnny Pitts, I'd never met. I'd read his book um, based in the UK, a writer, photographer, just reaching out to his literary agent, finding them online, introducing myself cold over Zoom. Um, so it was definitely a mix of old relationships, um, kind of an introduction mediated relationships like Farah and I, and then some people I'd never met in person. You, you mentioned these photographers and these works might be seen as something that would normally never be put together. Right. These, in some ways, very much so. In yeah. some ways. So what is the norm when it comes to work yeah. by people of color yeah. of any you know subgenre or whatever? Under what auspices are they normally put together and how is this a contrast to it? Um, you know, the political space within art, I think, often replicates the political space within the world outside the doors of art institutions. Um, I think there are amazing coalitions of folks that will come together um, but quite oftentimes you go in your own group, whatever that, whatever that group is described to be, and that's where you organize, that's where you represent. And, you know, not only do you choose that, but it's also, I think, what's expected of you based on kind of the wider discourse and power norms. You know, um, we think it makes us stronger and in some ways it very much does, but also the more we stay separate, we never really come together to defeat or come, you know, this thing that we actually could. And I think those things are very intentional out in the world within art space, um, it's interesting for me working with graduate students and undergraduate students, and I like to joke with them. And I say, we work for the Olympics. We just don't know we work for the Olympics. You know, it's the same thing. They expect artists mm -hmm. to come in in that group, waving the flag of your nationality, and this is who we will look at all within this one story together. You know, or somehow there's, um, it's the same thing in a museum. You can see it the way the galleries are split up. There are rare times when people will come together. Um, but again, I think it's less about shows of identity, and culture, and experience, and it's maybe some other topic um, that is more neutral or safe to have people together in the space. Yeah. And you know, that's just not the way I work as a political person in the world, but also as a curator in art spaces, it's just not the way my brain tends to work. And again, I love the projects that do that. I find them so important, but I think also to really kind of move the space ahead and also move the world ahead, you have to have people coming together, I think. Yeah. Uh, Farrah, I think Can one I of the- in? Oh, please, oh. please. I was just gonna respond to that, Asha, because it kind of ties in a few pieces for me here, just like hearing the two of you talk. But this idea of like the box was falling apart throughout the process and me questioning the discomfort. And it's almost like, what are what systems are we upholding? Mm -hmm. And then hearing you, Asha, talk about this like Olympics, like everybody's waving their flag. And it's like, oh yeah, what what systems are we upholding when, for example, for me as an Arab artist, I love being, you know, a part of um, the Arab world and showing alongside Arab artists, but what about the other global conversation? So why are East Asian artists always showing together, Arab artists always sharing together, you know, like just kind mm -hmm. of coupling and lumping groups of people together and we never get to have this global conversation. So um, what systems are we upholding, even in, in the like political art realm? And I'm, you know, these, this theme of being in the box, this discomfort um, can be, you know, on so many psychological layers, but also kind of speaks to this theme. Um, yeah. so I just wanted to, to share that, that moment of integration that came to me while I was hearing you both talk. 
Yeah, because the idea of you know the the idea of who gets to show has always been a con- you know a big concern, and mm-hmm. luckily there are some sort of breakthroughs. But I think as an artist, it's already a difficult landscape to navigate, right? The fight mm-hmm. art world and everything. But there's also sort of like sort of the personal struggle that you have, because as an artist, you're creating something, you're saying something with your work, and sometimes you're speaking to people who are not as well intentioned as t- well as well intentioned as they may be they still are ill informed but you nevertheless have to explain yourself in your work right and just 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 as from my experience having to explain who i am they hear my name they hear me speak in spanish and all of a sudden i have to explain who i am and contend with any assumptions they may have had before but as an artist that's just par for the course but i wonder for you Farah, if it's sometimes fatiguing to be not only the artist and a creative, but also having to be the educator to explain in order for you to just not just not justify your place in there, but it's like a necessary step that you have to do that an artist who's not a person of color doesn't have to do. Does that make any sense? <laughs> I hope it does. That, that makes a lot of sense. It's definitely exhausting, especially that in my practice, it's highly informed by my experience as an Arab woman, by my cultural background, by um, um, you know the history and lineage that I come from. It's a huge part of my identity, and there's there's elements of it and symbolism that shows up in my work that's very important for me. And there's you know there's a lot of missing links for some viewers sometimes that they. You know, I, I really have to do some of some of that heavy lifting of explaining, mm-hmm. or I'm expected to do that because the you know um, how do I say this? Like the version of my cultural background or the highlights that are sort of maybe known in the West is maybe the folklorized version or like the popified version of it. Yeah. Um, you know, the authentic essence. Um, is not as known as dominant Western culture, which is like so much more, I guess, made accessible through media or um, so much more normalized, I guess. Um, So I'm expected to like give this like really informative talk or something often, but I'm trying my best to find the balance where how much can I share that feels comfortable for me in a way where it's like, here are the basics because I also like to talk about them. Um, And this is how much I would probably like give you the headlines of something without it being so much labor, but also here's a, a reading list or sort of point for people where they can gather more information. Um, And I've done this in the past with some of my shows where I'll, I'll provide like a, a sheet of paper that has a reading list and um, people can just go and do their own homework because I can't do all of it. It's just too much to ask. And I'm trying to lean more on collaborating with um, curators or, um, you know, an an arts uh, programming organizer or someone who can help me introduce some of the work that I'm doing. So it doesn't all have to fall on me because I think, over explaining these elements that are in my work sometimes can take away from the work itself. And it just, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to step away a little bit from, for my work to have to be this like educational material um, 
does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it brings to mind this, you know, the idea of if you're doing a particular body of work that you get pigeonholed for that, that you are seen as, oh yeah, she is the Arab, you know, feminist who does just this kind of work. While the show yeah. seems to be saying that, uh, no, there's no particular agenda, you know, that these people mm -hmm. are a reflection of the variety of artists of color that exist, you know, around the world who are saying things that may be touching on those items or may be inspired by it, but they are revealing what makes people similar, the things they share, not just defining them in these very restricted, in a very restricted channel. Right. So also for you to sort of, when you're putting together the proposal, you, you have like a dual title, right? You got beautiful diaspora, you are not the lesser. Tell me about the thought process in terms of not just wanting to create this, this exhibit based on some singular idea, but doing it in a way that you're, you're, you're covering a, a, a range of themes, but you still have to pitch it to people to say, okay, we're going to do it. Right. Um, yeah. How does that yeah. sort of evolve and change from the initial idea that, that you may have had or others may have had with you and having a really good grasp of what you're doing and what you're trying not to do. I know that's long winded, yeah. but. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I like that you called it a process. It definitely is a process um, in my mind in maybe even 2020, early 2021. Um, I wasn't only thinking about having a dual title. I was actually thinking about what it would be to have multiple shows happening in one space that were um, kind of integrated together. And for people maybe to not even know which show they were looking at and for that to be part of the process, like walking through a building and thinking, wait, so which shows would I assume go together? Again, based on all these things that we tend to see. Um, that was my first idea and something I was actually probably, I, I don't know, until maybe even a few months ago or before the show opened, I realized this is very cool for me, but I think maybe is actually distracting from the artworks themselves. Um, and then in the public messaging to really kind of change that and make it um, much more condensed in terms of two titles, two concepts, but one group of people together. So yeah, definitely a lot of working with um, artists and studio visits and conversations, a lot with my chief curator at the institution, um, even talking with marketing people, other writers, and just saying, hey, like, are you into this? And many people did love that first concept. But I think, again, as I just started thinking about what it is to facilitate, um, you know, museums as an education space, but also what was the greater thing. And for me, it was just that solidarity and the artworks themselves and not getting lost in this kind of curatorial concept. And so the thing that you're kind of seeing now is the distillation of that thought process mm. and really just a lot of workshopping, a lot of curatorial workshopping. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, the final selection of work and what numbers you're going to exhibit, talk to us about how that, how that works when you're collaborating with an artist. Absolutely. You know, I can think about all the pieces, but maybe three in particular, Jessica Chow on the first floor who has, um, it's a three-story museum. Uh, the series Suburban Chinatown, Johnny Pitts, who has the work uh, Afropean, and then actually Sitwali Fabian um, on the fourth floor, um, who's looking at Indigenous women in her community from Mexico. In the bodies of work that are selected for this show, it was literally choosing out of like hundreds and even like thousands of images. Um, mm -hmm. Siza Cruz Bacani, an artist who takes pictures about domestic labor in the Philippines, also like thousands of images. And a question I would ask people was like, number one, what are you excited to show in Chicago? 
if you are not from Chicago, or if you've not shown your number one, just asking the artist, what do you want to show in town? Um, also, like, what's good for your career right now? There have definitely been bodies of work that I said, hey, can we show this series? And someone said, everyone always asks for this. Um, said Lolly Fabian. And so we did another project. So I think it really is just thinking about the concept overall, thinking about the group, the dynamics, thinking about the space, but also like, what does the artist really want to do right now as part of this collective statement? And I would say that is the hardest thing, you know, really choosing from, in Johnny Pitt's case, we have a hundred images. Um, he's previously showed this work once in Europe um, at Foam Amsterdam, 125, but there are 10,000 images he has in his whole project, you know, and we have a hundred. Oh, wow. oh yeah, big time. Um, Siza Cruz Bacani, we have about 18 out of a book of 150 pages, 150 page photo book. So yeah, it's incredibly tough. But again, I think the hope is that we can do what we can do within the space we have and knowing that it's not a solo show and that people will continue to follow each artist or maybe, you know, purchase their book, go on their website, start to really research this person and see the full portfolio of their work. And, you know, I think this show is an introduction to that for people who come who may not already be familiar. Yeah. There are a few things better than a lazy Sunday afternoon. I love lounging in my pajamas and slowly drinking my first cup of coffee in the morning. And then later I sit on a chair and slowly and carefully turn the pages of a good book. Usually a photo book. That's, that's a heck of a lot better than absently browsing the web for hours on my phone or my tablet and, and being left with a feeling that I was neither productive or fulfilled. A book, especially of great photographs, is the antithesis of that. That's why photo books continue to be so important to me, and why I believe that membership to the Charcoal Book Club would be invaluable to any serious photographer. Each month's selection reminds me of the unlimited approaches to photography, each title stresses the importance of what one says with a photograph. When you become a Charcoal Book Club member, you'll enjoy a great new title every month. And if you don't like that month's release, it's okay. You can choose another of a similar value. They offer free shipping in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code the Candid Frame at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And we can always do with your financial support, especially if you enjoy our work here at TCF. Each episode requires time, effort, and resources, and your donations help to make the show possible. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. If you've been thinking about doing this for a while but haven't gotten around to it, why not take the time to do it today? We would be very grateful. Thank you so much for your continued support. You know, far, you know the, the projects that you work on, they're self-initiated. You come up with an idea, you start experimenting, you start playing around, and you start working on it. Some, at least with some of the people that I've worked with, sometimes they're not really clear what it's about, but they just know they need to make it. And as they make it, they start having an understanding of what this means to them and what they're trying to express. So, but in, in terms of being able to, you know, select pieces for a body of work that sort of fits whatever theme 
tell me about the how important it is for you as an artist to be able to speak definitively about your work because i think that's one of the things that a lot of photographers are out there are sort of interested they think they they want to make the work they create the work but they don't want necessarily want to speak to it and it seems that to navigate this world that's something that you that's a skill that you have to develop so Talk to us about about that, not only with this current exhibit, but any other, you know, uh, exhibitions that you've been a part of. Yeah. You know, this was a big lesson for me because I, too, used to feel like, okay, well, my work needs to speak for itself. I don't want to talk about it. This is why I'm a visual artist. I don't really verbalize things well. But I can't speak for everybody. But I, I know from my personal experience it was actually um, a moment of growth for me to like a personal moment of growth to be able to feel more, um, find ways to uh, verbally communicate what the work is about. Because actually the way I started with photography, um, I was handed a camera when I was 14 and it was after my mom had passed. I didn't, I was so shocked because of that trauma. I didn't know how to verbalize or process that grief. So I used the camera for many years to kind of document and visually um, help me express myself. Um, that verbal part of my you know, ability to process what was happening because of the shock, I couldn't do it. And trauma tends to turn the part of your brain that can verbalize. So I can only speak from my personal experience that as I started to more and more take myself seriously as an artist, I would say, you know, in, in my mid twenties, um, or like earlier on in my 20s, I started um, feeling f having more conversations about the work. And that prompted me, those conversations, that back and forthness prompted the verbal aspect to start to come along. And for me to find, it's kind of like a healing process for me to be like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. I can actually talk about the feelings that go behind the work um, and finding value in that. I find value in it, not just because of like, wow, the art world, look at me, I can talk about my work. But for me, it feels so personal to be able to, wow, after, you know, um, having gone through that traumatic experience, now I can finally talk about my work. And, you know, sometimes it takes me a while to find those words to, you know, it's kind of like what you said earlier, sometimes you just have to make the work, you know, you just have to you just have to get that out of your system and then you'll know how to talk about it. And sometimes that still happens. But what I find most valuable that helps me really verbalize and frame what the work is about is those ongoing conversations that I keep having with people who are um, interested in my work, whether they're curators, exhibition visitors, um, just people who are like, hey, let's have a Zoom conversation. I, I have some questions. Those conversations really excite me and kind of help me grow more confident in finding those words to describe my work so mm. i don't know how much it is again for like necessarily for the fine art world or how much is it for me personally like you know I, I mean i can't advise everybody <laughs> other than like go with your own process and find what feels good for you and for me it feels good to finally be able to verbalize or, or have words for my visuals it feels really important and essential and also for you, how important is that when you're speaking to an artist to have that to have that skill set? Is it is it is is it essential? I I wonder if um, artists, you know, whether they're very um, 
young artists or they've been practicing for a long time, I think sometimes um, maybe a desire to not want to speak about the work can be rooted in a vulnerability of what it is to be criticized as an artist. I think, um, you know, whether it's in art school workshops, whether it's from your family, I mean, people really criticize the work when they're criticizing something you put so much into. They're criticizing who you are, the way you see the world, the way you express your feelings in materiality. So I think sometimes when people say, you know, I don't want to talk about the work, I just want it to speak for itself. I think that also can come from a place of having been criticized and not wanting to actually speak. I think, again, that's something that develops over time in different scenarios, different collaborative partners that we find. And I think people speak more as they become cared for um, and supported. And all of a sudden then like this words will flow. And I think about it in different ways. Just me as a curator doing my job, it's incredibly helpful when people can talk with me about what they're doing, because then I can think about how it can work in a, in a museum, how it can work in different art spaces, um, how it can work in a group show or as a solo show. Also as someone who represents the work, like far is not at the museum all day, every day, you know, I can actually know how to speak about someone's work in a way that it can resonate with the public. And I think sometimes as a curator, people can take a lot of liberties. I'm not someone who actually takes many. So I really try to deliver it in the way that, that the artist has communicated to me. So I think it's a skill Yes, but I think it's also a level of comfort that develops over time. You know, the, 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 the subtitle, You Are Not the Lesser, is defining that people of color are, in a variety of different ways, made to feel like they're secondary. But a lot of the work that's in the show isn't a direct reaction to that oppression, that discrimination. You know, it's, it, you, you don't look at that work and you go, okay, they are they are commenting on lynching or whatever it is. Uh, it's much more broader than that. So the beautiful, beautiful diaspora, it's very clear to me. But that second part, I think that that's, it, it, it's, it's, who, who, who are you making the comment to, right? It seems like yeah. my initial response yeah. was like, oh, this is commenting on, on the artist. Then I realized, wait a second, it could, it's also speaking to the very people who are looking at the work. So that's that mm-hmm. that subtitle is absolutely critical. So tell me mm-hmm. how that plays a role in in putting this all together, in, in this, especially how you are seeing it and what you're trying to say with it. Yeah, I love that second title. And again, I think the thing I love about it is that so many things can be triggered in each individual, depending how you walk through this world. Even you were saying before um, what it is to speak Spanish or people to question your name. You know, even within diasporas, within um, these assumptions people make about people based on our exteriors, sometimes we're meant to feel that you're the lesser part or you're just somehow not. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, it doesn't have to be people. It's weird. People make this assumption that it's a show about anti-Black racism. And actually, that's not really what's going on. It's not a show about racism at all. Um, it is just what it is to. It's like that box. You know, you don't put yourself in that box. This, it's a show about not putting yourself in that box, really. Mm. And I think everyone does that in so many different ways across your experience. Um, yeah, very much so. I, for me, we talked about this in the studio visit with Farad. Um, I tell the story every day of my life now until the end of June. I grew up in Northern California, actually in a very progressive part of the country, but I was still six years old. I'm Black American. My family is from the South. I grew up born and raised in California. Um, I came home from school and said to my mom, I've learned at school we're minorities. And I was like so excited about this, you know, because I learned something new. And she said, no, you're not a minority. And I said, the teacher told me, yes, I am. This is like a fun fact. And she's like, no, you know, the word minority contains the root of minor and minor is small. And you're not a small person. None of us are small people. You're not the lesser part of anything. And I think even sometimes with um, Mm -hmm. the term minority, people will think about it in terms of like, actually, people of color are a global majority. 
And that's a fine argument, but it's not even the argument I'm making. Like you don't need numbers or a fact to just know that you as a person are not a small person, you know? So that can be in a way if it's thinking about um, white supremacy, but again, that can be a way of thinking about gender. It can be thinking about class. It can be thinking about anything or even again, within groups that are maybe assumed or believed to be the same, like who's where, um, colorism, all these things. So I mm-hmm. think hopefully it resonates with everyone who comes in and they can see that these things they face are things that other people are facing. And again, it's not actually a show about, it's not a show about pain. It's not a show about any of these things. It's a show yeah. about this claiming of space, saying who you are. Yeah, because it seems to be an assumption of what a person of color wants to talk about, right? Yeah. And they're saying, yeah. well, why, do, why do you want to do that? Why aren't you doing something on drug addiction, about poverty, about, you know, sexual abuse, whatever it is that they think is the primary concern. And the reality is everything is a concern, right? We have to deal with things that other people don't have to deal with. So if I choose to do something that that appears initially to be about mundaneness, all those things, those those restrictions that are put on society are still informing how I do everything. So if I just choose to focus on one aspect of my, my mundane life, it's going to be injected by that. It can't help but be. So it's like there's, so, so it's 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 important for everyone to sort of understand. It's like we're just not hitting the same note over and over again. That's fatiguing for the viewer. It's fatiguing for the artist. But you you do artist therapy, is that right? I'm an art therapist. Art yes. therapist, like okay. outside of being. A- studio artists as well. <laughs> yeah, but that get, that gives you insight into the whole process of dealing with, you know, pain, trauma, and you and you get to work with a variety of people who experience that in very distinct ways. How has that experience informed what you choose to do and how you choose to do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get asked this question a lot. Um, well, I think that working as an art therapist kind of puts me in this position where I feel really privileged that people are able to trust me with their most uh, intimate and vulnerable thoughts and feelings. And that actually really inspires me to think of myself as an artist of how, how can I also share some of this vulnerability with with viewers through my arc, but also elicit those moments, those intimate moments for viewers to allow the work to take them into their internal worlds and and allowing themselves to internally have these conversations and moments that are like exploring certain feelings that we might tend to set aside. Um, So I, I really... Yeah, hope for for that, you know, those those experiences to come through for viewers through me, you know, as an artist, like by the work that I put out. But that's also informed by other people that I work with that inspire me to go there because it's incredibly scary. And I feel like in this point of the world that we live in, there's so much um, boxing that we need to do. Mm. There's so much containing that we need to do uh there's so much uh presentation and expectation of how we need to function there's these lines on a page that we need to um you know just kind of lay ourselves out on and whatever doesn't fit on those lines whatever that doesn't fit those pre-constructed check boxes 
needs to go on the margin. And the margin can be quite tight. And whatever is left on the margin, I sometimes think about it as, oh my gosh, I'm going really abstract. But anyways, whatever is um, <laughs> in the margin can also like, you know, like why does it have to be quote unquote the lesser part? Um, what if these margins expand and they're beautiful as they are? Mm. I feel like I went on a tangent, but I hope that made sense. <laughs> I, love t I love tangents on my podcast. So it's good, good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, I said, talk to me about, you know, you, you mentioned that you have a lot of floor space in which to exhibit the work, um, but you have to be very thoughtful in terms of what work do you show the next and think about the entire experience someone's going to have from the moment they enter the room to they see the last piece of work. I, I, I've never done it before, so I would love to get some insights into how you define that. How, how do you determine where what goes yeah um i think uh, definitely each curator works differently in the way they compose um i love thinking about curatorial theory and the ways that people describe things some people say you know they almost work in a visual narrative and other people are like no it's not a narrative um some people say you're almost in like a stage of theater but that all the players the audience the actors everyone's on stage together you know and it's it's kind of this collaborative space in that way even though you're working with still works in a photography museum you know, people take it all different ways. For me, it really is, it's wanting to tell that story. And you kind of do a thing where without, you know, there's strangers who you do not know that will come into the museum. And you try to get in their heads to think about how these strangers can come in and they can be a part of this story. And you know that, you know, it won't be exactly the same for everyone, but you try to create one through line through visuality. Um, Farah's work is actually right when you come in the museum through the front door, it's on the back wall in the main gallery on the first floor. The first thing you see it's so compelling, especially I love that top row. There are three photographs um, that all have this beautiful blue. And for me, it's like as soon as someone comes in, there's a positive vibe in the space. You know, again, no matter what assumptions people might have based on the titles, there is a positive vibe in that space. Mm -hmm. um, there is also a woman who is central. The first thing that you see, you know, you look to the left, there is Whitling Cadet, a Haitian-American woman, um, three very striking portraits against a wall that's been painted in a color requested by the artist, um, this kind of very lovely pale pink shade. Um, on the right, there's Johnny Pitt's work, which is this amazing bricolage of 100 images, primarily black and white, small scale. So even just thinking about what it is to have, you know, women that are foregrounded, having, um, you know, black and white works juxtaposed with color inside of a space. Sunil Gupta, another artist, is also on that main gallery with smaller works, about 12 that we have. So you're also kind of thinking about this experience of, you know, how many things to have on different walls for people to kind of absorb. So as they're interacting with each body of work, they're also kind of getting this full story in a way that's hopefully not overwhelming, but is just really welcoming. Um, there's another gallery to the right where there is um, Jessica Chow we mentioned. She has six photographs and then Kelvin Hazel, an artist based in Ghana, who has this large sculptural piece, you know, not a photograph included. So I'm also thinking about how can we have the experience of people um, like changing the mediums that they're seeing. So again, it becomes more impactful as you see each thing and you don't feel that you're following into one format or format. In my head, there's also hopefully a rhythm that's happening that you want people to kind of be falling into a rhythm of this work, but also um, you know the arrangement overall. There's another gallery on the first floor that has a video installation. Um, yeah, three, no, yeah, it's a full four wall video installation with sound. Um, there is one projection of a video on another floor that is, a, you know, just a, a flat screen projection on a wall. 
So even in thinking about that, I'm like, well, I don't think I'd want necessarily two of the same type of video projection, but how do we have things that are different for people to interact with in the space? You know, that series by Ngadi Smart that I mentioned before, uh, that drag performers from Ivory Coast, they are these huge, um, striking images. And even thinking at one point, I had them on the first floor. And it's like, no, you need to have things that can balance each other. And, you know, you don't ever want there to be like pull or something going one way. You just want it all to work. Um, you know, so kind of next to this on the third floor, much larger than like moment with Ngadi Smart, we have Sitlali Fabian, who has these very quiet, lovely black and white images um, that are of her family. And it's just kind of this very lovely, intimate moment next to something that, again, is so large and has a different way of being vibrant. Um, there's also the Cognate Collective piece. Um, Amy Sanchez Arteaga and Nisei Albea is on the third floor, along with those works. It is little clotheslines with clothing hanging and small prints. It's a sculptural installation. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm thinking, you know, materiality and almost moving from experience to experience in a way that there's a story. But again, each artist, each section is very distinct. There's a lot of work that you put in from the initial concept to in the closing. Do you ever have do you ever have a moment where you can just enjoy it just for the sheer, sheer pleasure of enjoying it and not having to think about critically about all the stuff that you did and should have done? Yeah, I like that question. Um I will be honest, it's, I remember when I was studying um, curatorial theory, it was very different. I would go to museums and just like sit with artworks for a long time and just like enjoy being in that process. And I still do that, but I don't get to do that for long periods of time anymore. Like I still have that enjoyment in studio visits, but when I'm inside of a museum space, I'm, I'm I don't get to like just like sit for hours the way I used to. And I miss mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's just, it's faster now. Maybe it's that I'm at a different phase of learning, so I'm maybe still learning, but it's just a different phase of learning where everything feels fast. But I would say I still love like walking through the show. After working on it for over, you know, a year and a half, it has a run in your home museum. Hopefully you can travel, but it's, you know, for only so many months. So I make sure to like walk through the museum and see the show. You know, um, Mm -hmm. there are times if I've arrived early when I think no one's around and then I try to sit, it's just like no one's going to ask me anything. You know, I can just kind of sit here and be here for a moment. Um, but yeah, it, it actually does change and it is different. It's, I think that probably happens in every life or every path we take. It's never the same as the way that you begin. Yeah. Farah, did you get a chance to see the, the show? Oh, yeah, I did. So tell me about your experience taking it in for the first time. Well, actually, uh, interesting story. So this work, I, I did it in 2016 and then it was it was traveling part of an exhibition for International Women's Photographers Award for many years. And it was like, you know, had had its run, it's traveled, but I never got to see it because I was busy doing grad school and I couldn't, you know, like I knew what the work looked like, but I never saw it in person. I never stood in front of these prints because they were always traveling. So having like the the first time I won't forget walking into the space and seeing these works printed in front of me. And it's the first thing you see when you walk in, it was just a very like personal moment of, wow, this is full circle because I made this work right before I moved to Chicago and now it's in my home city and I get Mm. to experience it. And so it was just like a very powerful moment. Um, for me to, to see my work, but then starting to move around the space and sort of lean into the other stories and the, the multiplicity of topics that are coming through the other artists' work and um, finding these really beautiful moments of intersectionality 
Um, so there's this global discussion that is happening um, with its multiplicity of colors and themes and thoughts. And then we all seem to kind of find moments where we intersect and meet. And that felt really touching for me to um, see this work uh, be presented um, in this way alongside these artists. Um, and for, for me to have that first moment of seeing these prints in person um, alongside these um, other incredible artists' works, it just felt like, okay, it's landed. The work has found yeah. its home and I'm so glad I got to experience it in this context. Yeah, that sounds like a real blessing. Yeah. So, Asha, you you know you worked on this for more than a year. What did you learn from it that you think is going to inform what you're going to do going forward? Yeah, maybe I have a bit of a convoluted way of answering this question. Um, you know, the longer it stays up, the more that I'm no longer on anxiety, like trying to organize it and get it together and have the programs to mm -hmm. make everything is good. And you know, it's just it's been up for a month now. It's good. Um, I realized how special this show is to me as a curator. It's it's actually like incredibly, incredibly special personally, but also I think it's a special moment in my career. And I wonder if there will ever be a show just like this one for me, um, I, I think is what I'm realizing. And I think all the projects that we will continue to work on in the future will be special and amazing and impactful. But I think I'm realizing for myself, this is also a special moment that will never happen in quite the same way again with the same crew of humans. Yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question really, but no. that's how I'm. How I'm no, that's good. Too. Yeah, because I, okay. I, I, I've had, I've had you know, moments of collaboration have always meant the most to me out of my, you know, my creative life, and I've had those moments, you know, where I felt like I'll, I'll never have this again, and I appreciate it for what it was, and yeah, I may be able to work alongside other people, but it will never be what that was because that is about that specific moment in time and who I was at that time. And if you put that same situation in me Very today, nice. I would be, it wouldn't be the same because I'm so many years older, yeah. have so many different experiences under my belt. It, it could be the same thing. So I, think so I completely get that. If I can, oh, yeah, if I can add also, I think coming out of the pandemic, there are definitely yeah. a few projects I worked on in the pandemic and they meant, they meant a lot each time. And I will say with this, especially, you know, we did organize this mostly half of it pre-vaccine, post-vaccine, but still the world was not quite open yet, as it seems to be once again now, at least here in Chicago. Um, and to, I think, be a part of something that was just really positive and to feel connections and bonds with people, again, oftentimes over telecommunication. And then to see the realization of that and that it's so good, you know, just good, is, is pretty special. And, you know, there's only been good energy working with every single person on this project. And if you can share with our listeners um, where it's showing and what, what the dates are, are open? Absolutely. At the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College, Chicago. We are located at 600 South Michigan on Michigan Avenue in Harrison. Uh, the show will run until June the 26th, and we opened March 3rd. Great. Well, my last question for each of you is the one that I ask each of my guests. I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered, and who would that be and why? So, Farrah, why don't you go first? Oh, man. Okay. It's a hard one because I have so many to pick from. But I'm just going to go with Tariq al -Ghussain. Um, He is a Palestinian-Kuwaiti photographer who actually, I was doing a workshop with him while I was shooting Cornered. 
And um, he mentored me through this project. And it means the world to me to have had him as a mentor. And I think he's an incredible photographer that everybody um, should see his work and learn from him. Thank you. And Asha? Um, I think I have hopefully named all the artists in the show, except for possibly not David Ha, Ishal Eirikavuk, Tintin Wulia, who are all multi-artists, not necessarily photo-specific, David himself, not at all. And then finally, Abana Afia is a photographer to check out. Abana is about 22, 23. She did biomedical sciences as per her undergrad and then said, you know, I really want to be an artist. I did this degree for my family, for my parents. This is what I'm doing. Um, an amazing young photographer based in the UK. Well, thank you so much for the recommendations and for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks to Farah Salem and Asha Imanvil for joining us. Find out more about the exhibition by visiting the website of the Museum of Contemporary Photography, Chicago, at moco.org. That's M-O-C-O dot org. And if you are a fan of our work here, you have different ways to support us. You can write a review on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on your social network, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And you can support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Thomas Nilsson for his generous contribution. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, Download the Canon Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity in the past, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech. Com. And this is Ibadian X with an extra gravelly voice, and this is The Candid Frame.